You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I wrote that. Uh, Just kidding, I didn't. Thomas Cranmer wrote that, and um, it's one of his most famous collects. It's Uh, For some reason, I don't know why they did this, uh, but it used to be the second Sunday of Advent. That's when they would uh, uh, pray this prayer uh, for the collect of the day. Uh, They've since moved it. Now I honestly can't tell you where it is. I know that it comes uh, in the fall at some point, uh, but what Sunday it is, I don't know. Uh, But this little collect, this prayer, had such staying power that if you go to a lot of Protestant non-Anglican churches today, the second Sunday in Advent is still called Bible Sunday. Why? Because of this Anglican prayer. Uh, Because it sets forward exactly what the Bible is all about in our response to God's Word, so that the second Sunday Advent is still called uh, Bible Sunday in uh, a lot of churches. We still call it Bible Sunday every once in a while uh, around here, but Without this colic there, it doesn't make uh, much sense. But we're going to look at two articles today, uh, six and seven. Uh, we're skipping over the Holy Spirit, as if you can, uh, but only because uh, Deborah Layton is going to teach that class. She did a really good series a couple years ago on the work of the Holy Spirit, and so she is going to be with you uh, next week uh, to backtrack a bit and talk about uh, the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to read for you, or you can pull it up on your... Book of Common Prayer app, uh, verse uh, six, Article 6 and Article 7 uh, in the headings. Uh, article 6, of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not, required, is to be require, is not to be required of any man, so that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. And then it lists the books. Article 7 of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New. For both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. Although the law given from God by Moses is touching ceremonies and rites, do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. I am going to unpack all this. Uh, Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Selah. Okay. Well, let's talk about, let's unpack these articles. Um, uh, Right out of the gate, this was one of the big issues in uh, 
in uh, the Reformation uh, was not just uh, the nature of the Bible, because actually there was pretty widespread disagreement that the Bible was God's Word. It would have been very hard to find someone who said, I don't believe that. I think it's helpful hints for living, or uh, I think that it should only sit on a shelf and collect dust, because that wouldn't have even been an option. So when um, William Tyndale uh, died, uh, one of his uh, famous cries was, uh, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England, meaning Henry VIII. Because here was Tyndale uh, publishing uh, the Bible in English, and he was a really good businessman. Uh, because what would happen is he went over to the Netherlands where he could do this. Uh, he actually learned German just to be able to go to Wittenberg, Germany and have a conversation with Martin Luther. That was the only reason, because Luther didn't speak English, uh, spoke a lot of other languages, but not English. And, uh, and Tyndale, uh, in translating the Bible, realized he could go to Luther and speak in Latin and if you look at Luther's writings, Luther would actually ping-pong back and forth. He'd write in Latin, and then all of a sudden he would cross over into German. And he does that more often than not when he's trying to find a word that people would understand. So when Luther translated the Bible into German, it was a German that the loftiest noble could understand as well as the lowliest peasant who could read they could also understand it as well. And Tyndale took that cue, and so when he went to Luther, he wanted to speak German because he wanted to hear how Luther expressed the meaning of Scripture in a common tongue and how that might translate into English. So he got on with the publishing. He found a publisher who was very glad to do it, and uh, the Bibles began pouring into England. And believe it or not, <clears throat> the Bible uh, was condemned and they burned the Bible outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. They tried to gather as many Bibles as they could, and at the time, under Henry VIII, uh, it was somewhat ironic uh, because they went through uh, all of England and bought up every single Bible that they could in English and then burned them, which lined the pockets of the publisher in the Netherlands so that they could just print more. So actually, Tyndale wasn't at all bent out of shape about the... He didn't like the idea of burning the Bible, but he was a bestseller. I mean, he was really making a lot of money off of that. But his whole aim, and as the Bibles were being smuggled into England, was that even, uh, he said, I want even the common plowman to be able to handle God's word. And there's actually a couple paintings uh, that show a plowman uh, back in uh, the Reformation, a plowman standing in the field uh, reading his Bible. Well, unfortunately, Tyndale died. Um, and uh, he was murdered. And then uh, as a result, uh, though, uh, just a couple years later, God answered Tyndale's prayer, and the eyes of the king were opened, and the English Bible was not only allowed, Henry VIII mandated that every church have a copy. And they chained it to the lectern. Why? It was invaluable. I mean, people were just, we take for granted our ac access to God's Word. And it's in every, uh, although I, I was in da Dallas of all places, and I um, wanted, uh, I always check, I don't know, maybe I'll do this, I always check to see if the Bible's there. And of course, if you're a Marriott, there's the Book of Mormon with it. Uh, but I opened it up, and there was nothing in there, but there was this little card that said, we seek to accommodate people of all religious persuasions 
And so call the front desk where we have a selection uh, of religious titles. I was kind of intrigued by this. And I thought, well, what in the world do they have down there? And I went, and all they had was the Bible. And I thought, well, why didn't put it in the room? Um, I was expecting, you know, the Quran or, or something like that. But nope, it was just the Bible. And, uh, and so the Bible is so accessible. And we have a myriad of, uh, of translations that, that help us better understand uh, what God is saying uh, to us. And um, in fact, uh, even though Henry was okay with the Bible being in English, what he didn't like, and this was a refer, Alistair McGrath says that this was Protestants, uh, Protestantism's dangerous idea that the average person could read the Bible and understand it and come to the conclusion that they came to by God's guiding spirit. Henry VIII didn't like that. In fact, uh, Henry VIII uh, was down on anyone owning a private copy of the Bible to the extent that his uh, entire household was banned. But one of Henry's wives, Catherine Parr, not only had a copy of the Bible, she had a secret Bible study at Hampton Court Palace. And so it was said that they would have the Bible, and when someone would come in, they would cover it up with their knitting. Uh, or quilting, or whatever it was that they were doing. And when they left, they'd bring the Bible back out, and they'd start reading it uh, again. And uh, not to, you know, Henry VIII is a a complicated uh, person, to say the least. Um, I I don't think that he's a positive witness for the Christian faith. And I think that we need to, when anybody ever says, well, Henry VIII created the Church of England, uh, Henry VIII actually had, um, was working against what the Church of England would become. I mean, he was on the outs with all of, uh, with Cranmer and all of them about where the Church of England ought to be headed. So when he died under Edward VI is when all of a sudden the pent-up momentum was unleashed. And we have uh, the prayer books and um, as well as uh, a much more vocal, uh, the articles, things like that, a much more, uh, uh, a stronger uh, declaration of, of belief from the Church of England. Because for all intents and purposes, Henry's church was the Roman Catholic church without the Pope. That's all it really was. Which, quite frankly, every king in Europe wanted. Uh, Henry was not alone. Everybody in Europe, including Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who Luther would stand before, the big, that's why they were interested in at least hearing Luther out. Uh, because every king wanted to take the Pope's authority politically and get it out of the country. You can have spiritual authority, but, but you can't do that. And politics played a huge part in the English Reformation. Lest we forget, Catherine, uh, Henry's first wife, whom he wanted a uh, divorce from, he wanted an annulment, and Henry had his reasons. Uh, Henry believed that he was cursed. Now, before we get too judgmental about that, we need to understand that Henry VIII and Luther, as well as many others, were medieval men. Like, they really, really believed in things like, I've been cursed. Uh, And Henry thought that he was cursed because Catherine was previously his older brother's wife. And he read in the Old Testament that that's a no-no, to marry uh, your brother's wife like that. And so he felt that, um, that as a result... He uh, didn't have male children. Of course, Catherine would give birth to Mary and felt that that really is what had happened. So uh, he applied for an annulment from the Pope, which the Pope had actually previously granted another monarch in Europe not that long before that 
under similar but uh, different circumstances. Uh, but the circum- when the, by the time the request arrived, the Pope was under house arrest because the armies of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had arrived at the gates of Rome to try to quell papal authority. And who is Charles V? The nephew of Catherine of Aragon. No way the Pope was going to allow that because he's got the man's army out front. He allows the annulment and it's not going to happen. So there are a lot of political things at play at the time of the Reformation uh, in England. Uh, But all that to say, Henry was a convinced Roman Catholic and it really wasn't until the very end of his life that uh, Cranmer scored a victory for the Lord. And that is, uh, while Henry was dying, uh, there are lots of scenes, you can look at the paintings of his death scene. When Henry was dying, he called for Cranmer, and he did love Cranmer. He really loved Cranmer and let him get away with a lot. In fact, Henry VIII would get very upset when people would try to undermine Cranmer's authority, even though Henry VIII didn't um, agree with him on things. And so as he was dying, he asked for Cranmer to come to his deathbed. And instead of administering last rites uh, or even administering uh, Holy Communion, uh, Cranmer went uh, to his bedside, took Henry's hand, and said to Henry, are you putting your full faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? And if you can, squeeze my hand. And Henry VIII squeezed his hand, and then he died. That was it. That's a good death. That's a good death. And so it was all about Jesus for Cranmer, and things took off. So the people began reading the Bible, uh, and openly, and so the ideas were being hotly debated. That's why the need for the articles to try to give parameters uh, as to uh, uh, biblical interpretation and where the Church of England stood. Some of the articles that were eventually revised out were actually um, against the Anabaptists, not just the forerunners of the Baptist and not just the Amish or the Mennonites, uh, but those who had really radical ideas uh, about who God was and what he's done. If you want to know what the radical reformers believed, turn on TV at 2 in the morning. Uh, believe it or not, there is very little difference between Benny Hinn and some of the, the more radical reformers in, um, uh, in Luther's day or in Cranmer's day. And so Luther, uh, Cranmer had a particular distaste for this kind of theology, and so he wrote some articles against them, but they've fallen out of use as a result of revision. But you can go look them up. Uh, they have to do with the return of Jesus uh, as well as some other things. Uh, but the Bible was an important issue uh, because the issue that plagued the Church of England at the time the articles were written, I think, is the same issue that we deal with today. And that is not, is the Scripture authoritative? I realize for some people it's not. It's simply not. But is the Bible sufficient? Is the Bible sufficient? And so, as in Cranmer's day, as it is in ours, a lot of people will say, well, I believe that the Bible is a authority, an authority, but not the ultimate authority. I've even heard people go so far as to say that when we talk about the Bible, uh, it's not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God, and it's really up to us to discern when God is speaking and when he's not, uh, which would be a little bit odd. I mean, think about if you were to read a book that's getting some negative press for awful reasons, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Uh, everybody had to read To Kill a Mockingbird, right? And you do want to do some dissecting of the issues that are brought up in To Kill a Mockingbird, but how ridiculous would it be 
uh, to sit there and say, well, I know that that's what Harper Lee wrote, but that's not really what she meant. What would Harper Lee say about that? No, that is what I meant. Right? That is what I meant. Uh, but people do that with the Bible all the time. They, they read it and say, well, that may be what God intended, but surely he means something else, or rather, surely he means what I would want uh, it to mean. But the bigger issue that Cranmer wanted to show us was that Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, which means if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you're going to find out what your problem is and what the solution is. You're going to find out that you're broken and sinful and that you're in need of a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus Christ. And He's reconciled you to God the Father by His death and His resurrection. And to enter into fellowship with God, you simply need put your faith, your trust, rely on Him, depend on Him, and you enjoy fellowship with God. And you're made a son of God, a daughter of God, and an heir of His eternal kingdom. That's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about Jesus. But Cramer and others said, but wait a minute. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man or woman, that it should be believed as an article of faith or thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Is it really hot in here or is it just me? Leland, are you controlling the thermostat? It is just, whew, I feel like I'm under judgment. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but what they wanted to make the point was, like, if, if you can't prove, well, one, any doctrine that you're going to hold, whether it's as the church or as an individual, you need to be able to point to Scripture to back it up. Right? You can't rely on the book of second opinion. That's not what it's about. And so that works both positively and negatively. And so you would say, um, uh, how... Um, how is it that I'm saved? Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay, where do you find that? Well, here in the book of Acts, I find that. Show me which verses. And you go through the verses. But it also can be, can be done negatively. So at the time of the Reformation, one of the big debates was over the nature of Holy Communion, which we'll get to uh, down uh, the road. Uh, and that is... Um, is it literally uh, Christ's body and blood? Is it transformed into his physical body and blood, but under the form of bread and wine? And it's very hard to make a scriptural argument for that. In fact, you really can't, uh, which is why the Church of England and the Lutherans and the uh, Presbyterians came to a different conclusion, because they wanted to go to the scriptures. In fact, that was one of the cries of the Reformation, was ad fontis, back to the original, right? Back to the foundations, back uh, to the sources, and uh, so they would consult the Bible, but also things like the authority of the Pope. Where do we read in the Bible that a particular bishop in any particular city has any particular authority? Nowhere. I mean, even the tradition of Peter, uh, upon you I will build uh, my church, uh, what do we see in Galatians? We see Paul going toe-to-toe with Peter, even saying, I rebuked him to his face. Well, Roman Catholicism, you don't rebuke the Pope, pope to his face. I'm sure you do it behind his back, uh, but you wouldn't do it uh, to his face. And uh, I was uh, in uh, Carthage in North Africa with a friend, uh, as you are often want to do. And uh, as I was uh, breezing through Tunisia, uh, 
there's the Roman Catholic Cathedral that is now uh, just a museum uh, there in Carthage after the French uh, left it. And there you'll find the bones of St. Louis. So if you want to know where St. Louis is, he's in Carthage. Um, he, uh, just as an aside, fun little story, uh, St. Louis, one of the, the Louis of France, uh, I forget which number he is, uh, nine? Very good. Carol, extra wafer for you. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Louis the Ninth uh, made a, a promise uh, that he would never go on to, uh, to get his release uh, from uh, his Muslim captors. He said, I'll never go on crusade again. Uh, but what, he did it. He went on crusade again. And so when he got caught, they said, okay, you're going to stay here in Carthage with us. And so uh, when he, and he died there. Uh, and he, he had a nice existence there, so it wasn't all bad. And then uh, they, they buried him there. But so there's St. Louis in this box in Carthage. And then you look up and painted around this huge cathedral, it says uh, a, a, in Latin a quote that was attributed, I think, to either Augustine or Athanasius or someone like that. And it said, surely next to the Sea of Rome, Carthage is the greatest. Really? Right. Well, where's the Bishop of Carthage now? Nowhere. There is no church see uh, there. And so what the Reformers saw is that there were just all these layers of tradition that had been built up on one another that actually... Uh, we, we needed to open up our Bibles and at least measure those things that we have declared as a necessity of belief up against the Bible. And if they didn't, then quite frankly, there were some things that you had the freedom to believe if you wanted to. You had a freedom of conscience. So, you know, right now in Anglicanism, we're having this big debate over the issue of, of authority and whether or not we ought to have not a pope but sort of a group of people that might be kind of popish uh, together uh, to appeal to uh, for things. Um, and I think that people of conscience on either side of it, I frankly am against that, uh, but uh, that you can, you can make an argument either way. But you can't say uh, that the Bible says, and you can't force people to believe uh, such things. And in the same way, one of the things that broke down um, at the time of the Reformation, uh, John Hooper uh, was a wonderful reformer. He was burned at the stake by Mary and was a gigantic pain in the neck, uh, seconded only by John Knox. Uh, John Knox, you may or may not know this, was offered a bishopric in the Church of England. He was supposed to have been a bishop in the Church of England, and he turned down multiple bishoprics. And do you know why? He refused to wear the vestments of a bishop. Not cope and mitre. That went the last Archbishop of Canterbury to wear a cope and mitre until the 1920s was Cranmer. And then from the Reformation, right at the start of the Reformation when Cranmer discarded his, it wasn't until Cosmo Lang in the 1920s uh, put a mitre on. And he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury to do so. Uh, for a very, very long time. And if you've ever seen the King's Speech, you know the jerk Archbishop of Canterbury in that movie? That's Cosmo Lang. Uh, so, uh, and that is, a, he, he, was a, he was a very difficult man, uh, to say the least, and really thought he was a prince uh, of the church. But I'm sure he was um, a good friend. So, um, trying to redeem him a little bit. Uh, but one of the great, you know, one of the, it was one of the things that they fought about at the time of the Reformation with Knox 
And Hooper, although finally Hooper acquiesced and said, fine, I'll wear the Rochet and Shamir, which is like the real billowy thing with the ruffled cuffs that you see our bishop wear sometimes and this sort of long vest. He said, fine, I'll wear those. And that's because there was a breakdown in the Reformation, uh, especially as it pertained to worship. Uh, you had the regulative, regulative principle and you had the normative principle. And the Anglican said, look, if Scripture doesn't talk about it, then you have, you have the freedom to do that. So the Scripture doesn't say whether or not you can wear these robes. And so we, we, now we do believe that Scripture says you ought not to wear these robes uh, because of what they represent, uh, but these are fairly, fairly innocuous and simply are a symbol of office. Were those... Uh, of a regulative uh, nature said, unless Scripture says expressly that we are to do something, then we can't do it. So uh, there are Protestant denominations that don't, uh, don't have, an or- they don't have accompanied music, right? Because the Bible, it does say it in the Old Testament. The Bible also doesn't say you should have air conditioning. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, uh, which I wish we had some right now. Um, <laughs> That's just crazy. Um, all right, if you were at the nine and I pass out, somebody preach. Just preach what I preach. It's fine. And so if it's not in the Bible, people ought to be given the freedom uh, to believe something so long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. Does that principle make sense? And that's where Anglicanism really came out, and that's what this article is saying. And then it goes on to say that here are the books that we understand as the Bible whose authority was never any doubt in the church. And what that did was it removed Apocrypha, which were these extra books, which actually they said, look, you can read them for Christian edification in the same way that, I mean, what Christian books have you read that you have found a real blessing? Well, I mean, some of you might have read Mere Christianity or Knowing God by J.I. Packer or a little devotional that you might use on your bedside table. Those books should be read to your edification, but they're not the Bible. Right? They're not of the same nature as the Bible in the same way that the Apocrypha uh, um, should be treated as well. And then the reformer said, well, let's talk about a hermeneutic. How do you read the Old Testament? And this is hard for Christians. What do we make of the Old Testament? Well, we want to avoid it. It's the third rail. Uh, and for the same reason that they wanted to avoid it uh, in, uh, in Cranmer's day. Uh, which is, uh, if you want to unpack all this, the idea that the God of the Old Testament is really mean and bad and the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious and kind. And they say, no, no, no. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. One, it's interesting, isn't it, that they didn't say the Old and New Testaments. It's one testament to Jesus in two parts. Old and new, an everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Meaning that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It points to Him. Some of those things are much more vivid and uh, in their descriptions where you walk away saying, it's hard to see how anyone can see that that's not Jesus. Uh, some examples of this. Uh, most no- Well, there are innumerable examples. Uh, you have the suffering servant uh, in Isaiah. Uh, you can read the prophetic Psalms. Uh, you can go to the book of Numbers where the serpents enter the camp 
And Moses affixes the bronze serpent to the staff and holds it up. And anyone who looks to the staff uh, will be saved. Uh, You see it in Abraham's uh, taking Isaac up to be sacrificed. I mean, the language there is not to be uh, believed. As they're going up, uh, it's a terrible scene, uh, to say the least. Uh, But as they're going up, uh, Isaac uh, sees his father carrying the wood. He sees the dagger. Well, first off, who's carrying the wood? Isaac. Isaac's carrying the wood. And he asks his father, where's the lamb? Where's the animal? And you know that Abraham wouldn't be able to look his son in the, in the face, but looked away and gave what seems to be a throwaway line that God himself will provide the lamb. And then he gets him up there and lays him down on the wood. But before he thrusts the knife, what does God do? He provides a lamb, a ram in the thicket. Um, I'm not sure what the therapist bill for Isaac was uh, uh, after, after that. Um, not sure whether there was one in Shiloh or not. Uh, but you see, there's so much in, in the Old Testament that points to Jesus because it does uh, point to Jesus, and it sets him out as the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. But this is an interesting point that they're making and is easily lost. What they're trying to say is that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is the union of a true God and true man in one person, in the same way that the Bible is the divine human word of God. The particular part of human history, I'm going to read from something, uh, out of which the Bible came and which is recorded in the Bible, includes the history of Jesus of Nazareth. Like any other historical character in the Bible, he is part of the biblical history of redemption. But he is also a unique part of this history. As we've already seen in this book, which you will have to read later, uh, it's called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. All the biblical history finds its goal and meaning in Jesus. We are justified in saying that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is God's testimony to Christ. If Jesus, the Word, was a divine human word, it should not surprise us to discover that the Bible is a divine human word. The prophetic word of the Old Testament found its fulfillment and significance in the divine human word incarnate. But the prophetic testimony itself was a testimony to the fact that the divine word came through the human prophets so that what the prophet of God said as an oracle of the Lord was what God himself said. That the Bible is God's inspired testimony to the word of God as it came through the prophets and through Jesus Christ means that the Bible is itself the word of God. Yet it is a word given through human beings within their own history and culture. God did not suspend the humanity of the biblical authors any more than he suspended the humanity of Jesus. The Bible bears all the marks of its authors, their language, their forms, literary styles, uh, and their cultures all shape the actual way the messages were given. The incarnation of Christ was by the special operation of the Holy Spirit bringing about the conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. By this means, God broke the natural connection with sinful humanity and ensured the humanity of Jesus was exactly the kind that was needed for the work of salvation. Perfect. In the same way, God acted by His Spirit to inspire the biblical authors so that the humanity of the Bible would be exactly what was needed to convey the truth of, the, truth of God without error. When we speak about the infallibility of the Bible, 
we mean that it conveys exactly what God intended it to. God, God does not allow human sinfulness to interfere with his communication of the truth to mankind. And so there's a parallel that the reformers are trying to make between Jesus as God and man and the Bible being both human and divine in its authorship. And so we're not to look at the Old Testament simply as transitory promises. It's not just about Jesus. There's a lot of other stuff going on because the story of Israel is the story of God's church. Although what they do say, and this is a hermeneutic, a way of reading the Old Testament, and a question we get a lot. Okay, Andrew, will you say, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, but what about wearing cotton polyester shirts, which the Bible seems to prohibit? Or, I saw you eat more oysters, so much so that the ocean called, they're running out, and I know that the Bible says you can't eat that. What do you do about that? Well, actually, the reformers thought about those questions. And they said, law given from God by Moses is touching ceremonies and rites. Do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof, ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. Meaning, the deeds and punishments that God set out for the people of Israel are not necessarily translatable to us or to anybody in their day and age. Why is that? Well, when you look at the ceremonial law, that's a little bit easier to talk about why. Because the ceremonial law is fulfilled by who? Jesus. It's it's fulfilled by Jesus. And so even the destruction of of the temple, uh, where is our temple? In heaven. Jesus is our temple. So when we get to the end of days in Revelation, we're going to look around for for God's temple. Uh, There is no temple in the book of Revelation. And God's glory, I didn't mention this this morning in the sermon, but God's glory so radiates that you don't need need the sun or the moon. God's glory is lighting uh, his city that we will then uh, dwell in. So the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and the, the ritual has been fulfilled so that that's no longer necessary. Now, that was not just a biblical hermeneutic looking back at the Old Testament for people to say, well, that's why we no longer sacrifice goats and sheep. That was also to say, this is why we have a different idea of what church is and what church is for and what clergy are and what clergy do than the Roman Catholic Church. So still to this day, when an Anglican minister, if you were at Mike Weeks' ordination, when an Anglican minister is ordained, what are they handed? A Bible, and they're told to take, God, take this Bible as a sign of the authority for you to administer God's Word and His holy sacraments. Right, that, this, is, this is our authority right here. We're, we're under it, not over it. In the Roman Catholic Church, still to this day, there's a difference in understanding. When a Roman Catholic priest is ordained, they're handed what? A patent and a chalice, right? a plate and a cup, and they're told... Take these as signs of your authority to offer up sacrifices for both the living and the dead. That's their job. That's that's their job. Uh, In fact, uh, uh, Henry VIII, uh, before he died, uh, he left in his will that he wanted a mass said for the repose of his soul every single day in perpetuity at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. 
And so Henry VIII died in what, 1547? 1547. And those masses were said every single day until the 1780s. And they didn't come to an end because they said, I think we've done it long enough. Uh, they came to an end because of the French Revolution. The money was still there. That's how much was left uh, to uh, Notre Dame uh, Cathedral for the repose of um, uh, Henry VIII's uh, soul because of the belief that Jesus really is sacrifice or even his sacrifice being represented on uh, the communion table, or as they would call it, an altar, um, was actually efficacious as a satisfaction for sins. And the reformers said, that's not true. We're certainly not saying that, that, the, um, that the bread and the wine are just, you know, small cocktails and skimpy hors d'oeuvres, uh, but what we are saying is that they're pledges and reminders and tokens of God's goodness toward us through the once and for all sacrifice in the cross of Jesus Christ. But going further, what does bind people? What is bound? Those laws and those commandments which are called moral. And so, Ten Commandments. Anybody want to argue that they're not still in effect, regardless of how we live our lives? Right? Like nobody's sitting around saying, you know, maybe we should rethink the whole thou shalt not kill thing, you know, or, or whatever one that might be up for grabs. Uh, no, the reformer said that those things which are called moral are actually not just given to the people of Israel, uh, but they're given to the whole world. Uh, their, their code of conduct for the whole world. Those ceremonials and those ritual things like shellfish, those were given particularly for the people of Israel for one very specific purpose, and that was to set them apart and make them different. Specifically. So, I, you know, I would even go so far as to say that in many instances, like the shellfish, like the uh, blending of fabrics, in some ways they were arbitrary. Well, why do we have to wear cotton shirts and not, why can't we have a, a blend, especially in here? Why can't we have, you know, uh, some sort of blend? Uh, or why can't I eat shellfish? Uh, and really the answer in the Old Testament is because God said so. Because I said so. Because you are to be set apart and different as my people. And in the same way, God's moral law did set them apart uh, in many ways, uh, but also uh, universally. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about how you treat aliens, how you treat sojourners and foreigners uh, that come into the land, uh, how you treat uh, women and children, how you treat other members uh, of your household. Uh, those things certainly uh, still are in uh, effect for us today. And so we can't really read the Old Testament at a distance and say, well, that doesn't really uh, apply to me because so much of it certainly uh, does. And so no Christian man or woman is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. And I'm just going to stop there because we are getting close on time. Uh, I've gone over, but I want to ask if there are any questions or comments or concerns uh, about what I've said. Nobody has any question about the Bible, like I had a conversation with somebody, or I've got a friend who, but you're talking about yourself. Just kidding. Yes, Mary. Did you say that there's a core verse in the Bible that says 
Yes, the entire book of Hebrews. I mean, yeah, I would go to Hebrews, and then uh, I would also uh, talk, uh, you know, Jesus' own declaration that tear this temple down in three days, and I will rebuild it, talking about the lack of necessity uh, for the temple. And so there is, uh, amongst some, this, this is an American thing, uh, there are many uh, that would like to see the temple rebuilt uh, and the ceremonial sacrifices being reinstituted, uh, even by Christians in the United States. And that would be, um, uh, that would be a great foolishness, uh, I, think, be, I think, because it would, quite frankly, veil the gospel uh, and certainly is not part of, of God's plan because that has already been fulfilled uh, in, uh, in Jesus. And uh, again... Also, the mistake of saying, well, the Old Testament book is a Jewish book and the New Testament is a Christian book. The Old Testament is a Christian book. It talks about Jesus. It points to Jesus. And so any talk about trying to perpetuate, uh, you know, building the temple again uh, or, or wanting to reinstitute those ceremonial laws uh, would be against the message of the Bible. I would also say for dietary things, uh, you can see uh, Jesus' own words uh, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. Uh, certainly, um, uh, David going in and taking the showbread from the temple uh, and his men, you can look that up. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Acts 10, uh, Peter's vision that God gave him where this huge sheet is unfurled and there are all these animals that the Old Testament would say are unclean. And God says, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter says, no. Uh, and, and God says, don't call anything that I have made uh, unclean. Because now the differentiation between God's people and the world is the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That, that is what differentiates us. That is what marks us out no longer. Uh, so that's just, you know, the mark of a Christian is not a cross around our neck. The mark of a Christian is not a fish on the back of our cars. The mark of a Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit manifested in love. A new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what marks Christians out. Okay. Anything else? Yes, Oscar. Yeah, I mean, there is a place for interpretation, and we do need to look closely at um, whether or not we're talking about cultural context. So, for instance, you're looking at the Corinthian church, which ought to get a lot of exposure, where Paul says women ought not to wear certain jewelry nor braid their hair. Now, is that a prohibition against jewelry and the braiding of hair? Well, let's look at the cultural context. Who braided their hair in Corinth? prostitutes, right? So, uh, so the prohibition there was you should, um, you should dress with modesty, SEC girls at tailgates, right? <laughs> that, that is what the Bible is saying. Um, so it's not, so you can't just like walk out with this short skirt and say, but my hair's not braided. I fulfill the law. Like, in fact, you've, you've wrecked right through it. I'm going to hammer on that thing uh, and, and, and 
until I, I see absolutely nothing happen. Um, uh, so yes, uh, the reformers uh, struggle with it, and we struggle with it, and what I hope is that we continue to struggle with it because so often people get to the hard parts of the Bible and they just skip over them rather than actually praying and engaging and asking the hard questions. Or you just, I think what a lot of mainline denominations have done is they've just simply looked the other direction. They've said, well, I know it says that, but we're just going to keep on going the direction uh, that we're going. And that is... uh, that, that is uh, a fatal, fatal mistake uh, because it, it absolutely destroys uh, the witness of the gospel uh, in, in the world and rightfully gets us designated uh, as hypocrites. And so, yeah, that means that we have to struggle with parts of the Bible that are really hard. I mean, the parts that all apply to me are the ones I want to change. Right? I don't like it. Uh, I don't like it. And yet, um, and yet I do like it. Uh, I realize that that's God's will for my life, and I really, if I believe that He is who He said uh, He is, and that He really does have uh, a plan for my life, then my response is not to argue with Him or to tell Harper Lee what she really meant, uh, but actually is to submit myself and do my best to live into what He's commanding. And that a witness to the world. See how they love one another. So much of the book of Acts said that those who saw what was happening in the church, they were provoked to jealousy and said, how do I get in on this? All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.